0: we have Crystal Bustos. She's a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a two-time World Cup champion, a world champion, Olympic silver medalist, and holds the world record for the most home runs in the Olympic series. So with that, I present Crystal Bustos.
1: Hello, hello. Good morning, everyone. So yeah, I just got up a little bit ago. So I'm getting my coffee ready, getting everything going. But um, I I just wanted to go ahead and do this. It was Anytime somebody reaches out, I try to to accommodate, especially with the way everything is right now. Um, I know your administration was like, what is this going to cost us and this and that? And I'm like, oh, it's not going to cost anything. Like, I'll talk to the girls. It, it's, it's one thing for us to, you know, run a business and do what we got to do. But it's another thing to make sure that we can reach out to you guys during this pandemic and keep everything going and, and help in any way that we can with our – colleges and our travel ball organizations and whatnot um so she briefly talked about a little bit about ruthless so i do run an organization called ruthless um they are from 8 to 18 um from 10 different states uh working on adding our 11th state um yeah so we're there in jersey not too far from y'all um and uh it's one of our biggest programs they run about 10 teams now so it's been pretty cool. We get all of our Olympians to come in and pro athletes and whatnot to come train and help out. Um, so it's been pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> but for you guys, being a D3 and, uh, and listening to what rules and stuff that you guys have, it's kind of hard because you guys have it a little bit different. You know, a lot of D2s and D1s, you know, we're able to still continue to do some some things with them. But for you guys to be completely on your own is is just gonna be hard it's gonna be hard you know and the one thing that i can say is use all your avenues use your travel ball programs use your coaches that you can talk to um reach out to people like myself and get yourself some things to work on if you need things to work on you know i know jenny does a lot of stuff too as well and other people um that do online stuff you know so reach out and and do those things and you guys have wouldn't have gotten to the college level if you didn't already have some kind of discipline that would be able to get you there to know the, the ins and outs, you know, your T work, yours rowing, your fielding, your hitting, um, <clears throat> getting all those pieces that you need, but it's going to be really key for you guys to gel as a team to really try to do things as a group, um, in, in the Zoom meetings, I mean, to be honest, that's the only way unless you guys can get together outside of there on your own. Um, but I, I feel like you guys are all in different states probably, right? Or at least hours away from each other.
0: Yeah, like um, some of us are close by, like, pro- like some of us are in New York City, others are on Long Island. So we've tried to meet up when we can, but um, it's been tough to have everyone together. Yeah,
1: I bet. I bet. And then trying to do things um, to where – You're able to, you know, it's one thing to train that individually, because trust me, on the U.S. team, it's it's similar to what you guys deal with. And a lot of people don't know that. So playing on the U.S. team, we meet only once a month. So when we go to the Olympics, everyone thinks we're together like all the time. The four years, we're meeting up once a month. And that's for like a week. And the rest of the time, you're, you're training on your own. So you got to either get a personal trainer to work you out with your physical fitness. You got to find people to hit you balls. You got to find people to maybe pitch you balls. Like we're constantly searching for pitchers and 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 people to do those things. So it's not easy. It's, it's a lot similar to what you guys are dealing with there. And trust me, it's, it's, there's no coach to tell you what to do. There's nothing. So it's, it's all on your own until you get, nine months out before the Olympics. So this January coming up, you're going to see all the Olympians come back together, the ones that are going for uh, 2021. So they'll get together in January and they'll be together till they compete. That's the only year they're like that. Every other time they're training on their own. So you in a sense are like Olympians. You're training like Olympians. You're you're playing like Olympians you want to go out and compete and it's it's you got to trust each other to the point where you got to know everyone's doing their part and that's the hardest part of being an Olympian is trusting that so-and-so is working at home that so-and-so is working at home because we didn't have this luxury here when we did this it was on our own we had a phone that was it there was no video there was no nothing um So we didn't have a luxury of like just being reassured. Oh, look, we we all are training. There was no social media that you could post your training. Um, So you guys have a luxury of an accountability partner that you can just say, Hey, look, let's just post, let's post our workouts on Instagram on Facebook. Let's post what we're doing just so we can reassure each other, you know, that we all are on the same page that we want to be better. Um, that's one thing that I hold my, my kids accountable with, um, all of our kids, I recommend their parents, except for the super littles, they get to, they get to send it directly to me through group me. Um, but most of the parents, I recommend them starting to create this soft Instagram where we are able as coaches to see and hold them accountable for what they're doing. Um, and one, it, it makes them a little bit more accountable for their, for their actions, but it also helps them with their social life a little bit. Some of these kids don't have one. And so this way they can have one with all of our athletes, kind of like pen pals, our California group reaches out to our New Jersey group and says, you know, you're doing great and whatnot. And all the coaches are constantly looking over all the different athletes. So that's one of the cool things. So so hopefully with y'all you have like a team captain or somebody that can help put these things together and uh and do that do you guys have a team captain
0: we actually don't have it right now but um you know we try to help each other we try to come together and just like help push each
1: other yeah do you guys have any questions that you want to ask while i'm on yeah with
0: you? we actually got a few uh people oh, gotcha. submitted questions so i'll just go i'll just run through them So one of the questions that we got asked was um, because you face some of the best pitchers in the world as a hitter, how are you able to prepare for the next level with having to see the ball and recognize pitches fast while also adjusting to speed changes?
1: So the one thing that I can recommend is hitting it on a machine. A lot of people don't like machine, but I really like machine because the machine, you can adjust speeds. You don't necessarily adjust spins. Well, at least back in our day, we didn't have all those crazy machines. We just had the ones that threw straight. And if the ball was old, it would do whatever. So um, I recommend machine just because you can adjust to speeds without worrying about getting hit. Um, Unless you can find a men's pitcher. And I know this sounds bad um, that I'm saying that, but men's pitching seems like they can control the ball a little better and they can throw the ball a little harder and they can move the ball a lot better. So if you could hit men's pitching, you're going to hit softball girl pitching, any, any, any pitcher, you know, and that's why in the U S team, coach Kondre would bring in men's pitchers from our men's pitching team, team, um, USA men's fast pitch to pitch against us and to get us ready. If we could hit that, we could hit anything. Um, and that might be something you guys can look for is find somebody in your area. That's a men's fast pitch pitcher that could throw BPD all. Um, if you can't find that, then use a machine, but use the machine at different speeds. You know, a lot of people are like, Oh, I want it at 66 or, Oh, I want it at 70 or, Oh, I want it at 60. You literally use it <clears throat> at like 50, you know, use it at 40, use it at 48. Use it like use it at whatever speeds you want to work on, but use multiple speeds throughout your workout. And I know it sounds hard sometimes because you're always asking somebody to change the speed for you, but you literally don't want to lock in on one speed. And you'll notice people that do that is when it's slow pitching, they don't hit very well. Or when it's fast pitching, they don't hit very well. Or when it's medium pitching, they don't hit very well because they're only working at one speed. Um, In our culture and softball, you're only looked at as good if you're hitting high speeds. Have you ever noticed that? Like, yeah. parents will take you to the batting cage <clears throat> when you're young, and then they go and tell their buddies, Yo, she's hitting at 55 today. Oh, yo, she hit 60 yesterday. She's hitting at 65 in the batting cage. She's hitting 70 in the batting cage. I'm going, That's great. Nobody, like, very few throw 70. Like, and if they do throw 70, they're in the top 10 schools in the country and we're probably never going to face them. So it doesn't matter if I hit 70, you know what I'm saying? So like, but adjust the speeds to all of them. So what I did is our batting cage was always set. Um, It was set to whatever team was there before or whatever group was hitting before. I never adjusted the speed. I, I hit at whatever speed was the cage was set at. So if there was a 10 year old in there before me, I would hit at the 10 year old speed. If there was a 12 year old that was in there before I would hit at whatever speed they were hit. If there was a college kid in there, I was hitting at whatever speed I just hit at whatever speeds. Cause I wanted to be able to hit all of them. And so I would always do that. Um, and then I would use different dimple balls in the machine. Cause you know, a lot of companies, they'll put just w- the ones that throw straight Yeah, and I'll ask, do you have any bad dimple balls? You know, that you could put in there that will throw all over the place, because that was the only way we got movement. And you want to be able to take a pitch. You want to be able to learn to take a bad pitch. There's nothing wrong with bad pitches out of a pitching machine, you know? And you want to be able to hit high pitches and low pitches and outside pitches and inside pitches. So you want it to throw everywhere. So to me, that was how I was able to do all those different things. And I literally hit every day. Yeah. No, that was the thing. It's like I had to hit. I know it sounds bad. I didn't really field very often. I threw the ball around. I played catch, but I didn't really do a lot of fielding. But I hit every day because I wanted to hit. You yeah. know, I was told at a young age, if you hit, you play. That's what I was told. And it's the truth. If you're hitting, you're playing.
0: We have another question that um – was what was your mindset after you struck out or were in a slump for a while, especially like if it was a close game and a lot of people were expecting you to like produce, what was your
1: mindset going into that? Well, in college, my mindset was a little different um, because I was the producer of runs, you know, and I was the one that had to hit. And when I got in a slump, things happened and um, it wasn't good. So what I did is I would always hit more. I would go work on the pieces that I didn't feel I was doing good at um, after the game. Um, Maybe the next day I would change my training. Um, If it was inside pitches I was struggling with, I worked on my inside high to low, had the pitchers throwing inside high to low to me, all of that to kind of work on it. Uh, And then at the same time, I always knew because I trained a lot that it would come back. You know, and so I wasn't really too worried about it in the sense that I just knew that, you know, I had to just make sure I was working on the pieces that didn't work. As I got on the U.S. team, it actually made things a lot easier because everybody could hit. And everybody could score runs and everybody could hit home runs. So for me, if I was in a little bit of a slump, I just did the best I could to either move a runner, to bunt, to... Whatever I needed to do um, to, to get a job done, and really wasn't necessarily worried about myself getting on base. Um, when I got to the U.S. team, it was more about moving my runners than it was for me and my batting average and getting on base. Um, so I never even looked at any of that stuff uh, the whole time I played on the U.S. team. I could care less of what my batting average was. It was just about moving runners, making sure I scored runners. And if I was safe, that was, that was a benefit, you know? So it just, you got to know the role you play and you got to trust your training. Right. So if you go into a test, right. I always tell people, if you're taking a test, you study. And those that study and really work hard, go into that test very confident, right. That you're going to pass. Well, if you didn't hit all week on your own, and you didn't do all the things you could have done. And you go into the test, which is the game to hit. Well, then you don't hit. You don't have a reason to be mad because you didn't study for the test. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Like people that get in slumps normally didn't do the work they needed to do to get into the game, to be producing in the game, or they didn't take their training serious. It's like what I tell my girls. It's, you, you, you practice with a purpose, right? PWP practice with a purpose. That's our, that's our, that's our goal as an organization is to teach our kids to practice with a purpose. Um, because if you are just practicing and you're going through the motions just to get through the hour, two hours of practice or you're training, just so you can say you trained, but you didn't really practice or train with a purpose. Well, then you're still going to fail at the end. Yeah. You know, so you got to make sure that you're doing that. So for me, when slumps came and they did in the 2004 Olympics, I uh, I didn't get on. I went over the first three games. And a lot of people don't know that because they just look at the outcome. You know, we won the Olympics. We beat everyone 51 to one. And I moved my runners, but I personally didn't get on. So I didn't really care about that. But I moved my runners. I did my job but I wasn't on at all. I was over the first three games. A lot of people don't know that, but then I turned around. All I did was go look at some video, call my hitting coach, went over pieces and then I broke the home run record again, you know? So it's like, you just make adjustments, yeah. you know, and that's something you learn as you get older.
0: Um, the next question we have was, what does it feel like when they put a gold medal over your head?
1: It's a it's a pretty cool feeling. Uh, I remember in 2000 when that happened. I don't cry much, but I definitely shed a tear on that one. When they play the national anthem, you see your flag go to the top. And my parents happened to be there to experience this with me. They were right behind home plate. My mom was taking pictures. And uh, that's the gold medal you get. You know, a lot of people think, oh, they just do that with everyone. It's just a prop. And then you get yours sent to you. No, when they put it on your neck, it's yours. You go home with it, and um, that was that was a great experience to just be able to. We had lost three games; it didn't look like we were going to win it, and we came from behind and won the whole thing. Um, and that was the first three games we had lost in over a hundred and something games internationally. Wow. So to be able to do it in that fashion um, was cool, you know. And to play with the that was the last Olympics played. With a white ball, so. Um,
0: for- they also wanted to know if you if you when you got the medal if you bit it.
1: I did. <laughs> Let me see if I can show you. Where do I have them? Oh, they're in the other room. But yeah, I did. I did bite it because that's what everybody says. So you and it actually is soft. It, it does leave a tooth mark. <laughs> on it. <laughs>
0: Um, Do you have a word or a mantra that you say to yourself when you are competing?
1: Yeah, there's nothing you got I can't hit. I get in the box, I look at the picture, and I tell her, there's nothing you got I can't hit. Um, Because I've trained to hit the highest pitch from my nose to my toes, eight inches in, eight inches out, and there's nothing you got I can't hit. That's what I tell myself.
0: Nice. Um, someone else asked, is there something you regret in your career that you wish you would have done differently?
1: <sighs> Not really regret. I just think about it because if, uh, a regret is something like, I don't know, it just seems like something you would really completely change. But then I feel like if you completely change something, it will change the outcome, you know, where you ended up or where you're at. Um, I would have loved to probably play D one ball. Um, I didn't go do one. If you guys didn't know that I went to a junior college. So, and I went to the junior college because I didn't take school in high school seriously. Um, you know, my family, nobody went to college. Nobody got a scholarship for sports. Like it was all new. And I, I ran, I ran with a different crowd back then. And, uh, I got myself to graduate high school and summer school. And, um, just grade-wise, I was very intimidated when I took a couple of visits to UCLA and some other big schools, and I was just like, this isn't for me. You know, it was, it, everyone was like, oh, you're going – I was the top recruit in the country. You know, everyone's like, oh, you're going D1. You can pick your school, da-da-da-da. I took visits to, like, five schools, and uh, I ended up at a JC, and I threw everybody for a loop because the top recruit in the country goes to a junior college. But that was the best fit for me, you know, and that to me was where I felt comfortable. Smaller classes, not such a big place. It was just a better fit. And you see so many people push kids to go D1 that are athletes. They press on it, press on it, press on it. It's like, well, that's not my fit. That's not my fit. That wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went to a D, I went to a junior college in Florida and then I went to, um, I signed my letter of intent to go D1 and the pro league, uh, Sharon Back has called me, used to be the UCLA head coach. She was coaching in the pro league and she asked if I want to go pro cause she heard I wasn't really fond about going back to the, to this D1 because the D1, I had signed my letter of intent to go to the, you guys know about this coach left, right? So you signed to play with a certain coach and then the coach leaves. So you're like, damn, I wanted to play for that coach. Right. And so the coach left. Um, and I was just kind of in limbo. I didn't want to play for the other coach. And you know, if you sign your letter of intent, you pull out it. Well, back then you pulled out of your letter of intent, you lose another year. You only had a year left. So she called me to go pro and I went pro signed my contract when I was 19. And, uh, then, uh, my 20th birthday came and I was in the pro league. So, um, and then I went from the pro league to the Olympic team. So I kind of went in a big circle while everyone else went D one to the U S team. I went junior college pro league, then to make the U S team. Um, so that's, that's the thing I tell people, go where you fit, do what you want to do and what's going to make you happy.
0: That's great. Um, Another question that we have was um, what was a day in the life of Crystal Bustos while in college, balancing school and ath- athletics while still in season?
1: It was hard. Um, RJC was actually, cause I have like a lot of learning disabilities. So I have dyslexia reading, reading comprehension problems and stuff like that. So I had extra stuff that I had to do. Um, but uh, it was hard, you know, for me cause school has always been hard for me because of all that. Um, so I had tutors, I had to go to uh, to uh, study halls. I actually had, it was tutored by my head coach. You know, I had to go to their house. I had to get stuff done. I had extra on top of extra. Um, so it was hard. It was literally a day in and day out thing. You know, we practiced, went to school. I was in study halls. There was still some time to to enjoy college, you know, especially being in Florida. But it, was, it wasn't an easy task for me. It was something that I had to learn was time management and and how to put all that together and our coach was pretty good at at teaching us that she played d1 and uh, played on the u.s team herself Um, so she was she was really helpful in the sense of helping us put that time management together for those of us that needed it
0: um and then another question is Because you played with some of the best players, especially in the Olympics, how were you able to stay confident in your abilities and not compare yourself to other players that you were competing for the same spot with?
1: I understand that. Um, The cool – in the beginning, in 2000, on my first Olympic team, I didn't know anybody in softball. It was – we played travel ball. We competed at the highest level. We won national championships on the travel ball team I was on. But I didn't know who, like, Lisa Fernandez was. I didn't know who uh, Dot Richardson was. I didn't know who all these players were because I didn't follow softball like other people did. Um, all I, I literally followed the Lakers. Like, I was a Laker fan. I, I should have played basketball. I tell people that all the time. Um, I was diehard. Like, I knew every one of them. I knew what they did, where they played, like, all of it. But I could care less about watching softball. Um, I love to play it but I didn't follow it so when I made the U.S. team people are like you move Dot Richardson to second base and I'm like who's Dot?" they're like the shortstop the USA shortstop she was the USA shortstop she was legit I'm like oh yeah she good like I don't I don't know who she is but yeah okay and they're like you play with Lisa Fernandez I'm like who that which one's that <laughs> like the little picture the the latin picture i'm like oh yeah yeah she cool i'm like but well, i didn't i didn't know any of these people so i wasn't intimidated facing lisa during tryouts i wasn't intimidated playing short next to dot you know i just did me um and that's the one thing i can tell people just just do you don't compete with anybody just do the best you and that honestly was it i just did me and so when people got moved, it was it was what it was. Um, but I can relate to that move because when uh, Natasha Watley came on board in 2004, so I got moved from shortstop to third base. And I ain't never played third base. And I was like, people were like, well, you look horrible at third. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't, I don't play third. I play between third and second. That's where I play. I play short. I don't play third. I don't know how to play third. And I remember Coach Kondrea flat out told me, he said, you never watch Lisa play third? I'm like, nah, I play third. I play shortstop like there is no third baseman. That's how I'm able to get to the ball behind third. I play like they're not there. So I don't care what they do. I don't pay attention to what they do. I did my job. But now I got to learn this job. In two years, I got to be the best third baseman you got. So, you know, I never – looked at it as ever having to compete for a position, I had to play where my puzzle piece fit. You see what I'm saying? So Coach kondrea's puzzle has me as a third baseman in 2004 to be able to allow Asha to play and me to be in the lineup with him. So it was like, I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to learn it, period. You know, and then in 2008, I get moved the DH, you know, and I remember that conversation. Coach come up to me and goes, hey, uh, how do you feel about being the DH? And I said, I'm good with that. I get to hit, don't have to play. I'm good. I don't have to get dirty or nothing. I get get my bats. I get to do the fun part. I'm good. So, my puzzle piece in 08 was to hit and score runs, period. That was it. I didn't have to play defensive end. So, I was good with it. And that was something that was instilled to me when I was younger. My dad always said, you play where coach puts you and you give it a hundred percent. And that was me. I'll play wherever coach want me to play as long as I'm on the team. Mm -hmm. That's it. You give me my opportunity. I'm going to make the best of it. If it's just hitting, I'm good with it. You know, if it was just to come in and pinch hit, I would have been good with it. You know? So that's the thing. It's just like, each coach has a different puzzle, and you're going to learn that because you guys had a different coach that had a different puzzle. Now you got a different coach. she got a different puzzle and, and a different plan. So every coach has a different plan. Right.
0: Um, so because you've been playing for softball for such a long time, what keeps you always striving for success? Like I know at times, like maybe, did you ever get tired of playing? Like what kept you like constant with working out and playing?
1: It it never got tired of playing. It does get challenging training on your own. I will say that. Doing what you guys are doing. It's hard to kick your own butt. You know what I mean? It's easy when someone's pushing you to work hard. And they're looking over you. So for me, I had to hire a trainer. You know, I had to hire a trainer to work me out. And then I had to pay people to hit balls to me, you know, because that was that was the only way to get it done. I was going to pay these people for their time. Um, so doing all these Olympics, I had to do different things to, to keep me motivated because, you know, it, it, it's hard. You get sidetracked, you know, but you want to surround yourself. I was lucky like you guys. There's a couple of you around each other. I was lucky to be close to lovey. In 2004 and 2008, she lived about maybe 30 minutes from me, so we were able to train. Um, we were able to get some other people to train together. We would get together at UCLA, use their campus, and whatnot. So we were able to pull like five or six of us sometimes together and uh, train. So it's just really about staying motivated, and that's the hardest part. Is just your your drive for excellence is what ends up putting you there. You know what I mean? I never wanted to be. Not prepared. I never wanted to be the one that was going to let the team down, you know, and that to me, my, my, not my, not so much like the fear of failing, but the fear of letting people down. You know what I mean? They look at you to do a certain job. You need to be able to do that job, you know, and that's what I, what kept me going. Um, When And then my love for the game. Like, I just love to be on a field. I love to play. That's why I still coach. You know, it's like, I just, you can't keep me off of a field. Like, I love it. And when I'm on a field, I I have a good time. And that's, that's solely it. Like, your love for the game keeps you going. Your love for playing, your love for the, for the whole thing. Um, I retired still being able to play. But I retired because it wasn't fun anymore to me. Um, so what I tell you is the game should be fun, no matter what level college, professional Olympian, it should still be fun when the game doesn't, doesn't hit that fun mark anymore. That's when, you know, it's probably time to go.
0: Um, the next question we have is how was your team's chemistry when you were in college and how did your team and coaches establish that?
1: Oh, we had good times. (laughs) College was fun. I'm not going to lie. Our, our college coaches were young. Um, they were fun. They were always looking at keeping it fun. We would have like little, you know, games and practice that we would do that we still working on our, on our skills. Um, they would pitch to us still coach would field on the field with us. We play some fielding games. They get out there and get dirty with us. Um, they were younger coaches and they had a good time with it. Um, and we were all housed in college at the same housing complex so we all hung out with each other it was just definitely something that you need to be around each other to build that that camaraderie you know you need to be able to see each other hang out with each other do things with each other and know each other you know you know and that was something with the us team you got to know who you can walk up to right after they 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 made a mistake and you got to know which ones you're like, oh, she's mad right now. We'll wait like 10, 15 minutes and then we'll go talk to her. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we had that on every level, you know. So but for us, it was just we had a coach did a good job of bringing in complimentary like people to interact. Um, when they were bringing people in, they were bringing attitudes with it. And they knew that these attitudes were all going to mesh together and wasn't going to, you know, be a, a problem. You know, so I think they did a great job recruiting.
0: So because you said for the Olympics that it was kind of like what the situation that we're in right now, how you couldn't necessarily meet them. How did you build that chemistry um, in like a short amount of time?
1: On the U.S. team, it's because we had a mutual respect for each other's athletic abilities. Um, Like I tell people, they're like, are you are you friends with everybody? We're not friends with everyone. That's that's what it, you all look at it like, right? So you see us all play together and you go, oh, they're all like best friends. Look at them. Blah, blah, blah. On the field, it look like that. That's great. That's what it's supposed to look like. But we have a mutual respect for each other on the field. Off the field, I had a group of friends. Does that make sense? Um, I have a group of friends out of all the Olympians, I can probably put on one hand all the friends that I still have on my Olympic teams. You know what I'm saying? That we still talk to each other at least once a week. Um, and that those are my friends. Those are my friends. The other ones was my teammates that I mutually respected. And, yeah, we got along. We get around each other. We hang out. But we're not talking every week like my friends do. Um, so those are things. That, so it's okay to not be completely friends and know everything about each other. As long as you respect each other, you know, you got to respect each other. And And that's, that's the problem is when you get, when you get a team together and you don't respect the other person and you start disrespecting the other person and you start making it bad, that's not team. Um, I'm not saying you got to come with me to the party. I'm not saying you got to come with me when it's my birthday. I'm not saying you're going to go see my family. I'm just saying, let's just let's be cool. Let's be cool. I respect you. You respect me. Outside of here, we ain't got to kick it every day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But when we are around each other, we should be respectful to each other. You know, those are the differences. Yeah. Be adults.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, how many bats have you broken in your lifetime?
1: <laughs> that's a funny question. I've um I, you would have thought I would have broke a lot right? And I don't understand how bats break so much nowadays because I probably have broken maybe three four that's it like not very many bats um and I've you but these new technology, the new technology of these bats, they break so often. You know, like I got little kids that are on my team, my 12 and under team, my 14 and under team, breaking Easton's in like a week or two. It's like, how did did that break? You know, I borrowed an Easton and broke it in three swings. It was like, how do these things just, they just don't make them like they used to. So that's why now I'm I'm working with another company, hopefully here soon. And we're going to develop something that that the kids can use.
0: Um, So what made you start the Ruthless organization?
1: Honestly, um, all these other poorly run organizations. Um, I started Ruthless because people were taking, and people still are taking money from people to run under their organization, and they get nothing. You know, like I flew to California to work with my team over there and just only one team, Northern California, I fly in, I work with them. And my other friend is coaching another team. So I went and visit them and they said, and i talked talking to their head coach and I said, so if you don't mind me asking, how much money are you spending to, to wear that uniform? You know, I noticed you, you now this team and he goes, we just spent $9,000 roughly for the fall to wear, that, to wear that name. And I said, cool. What do you get for it? They come work with you? Are you on the website? Are they helping you recruit your kids? What are they doing? No, nah. we just wear the name. I said, so wearing the name you think is going to get you something? Like, I'm just trying to figure this out. Like, he goes, well, why are you here? I go, well, I'm here because I have a team here. They're 12 and under, came over here to work with them for four or five hours. I was like, however long it took? And then I go home. He's like, really, you do that? I go out with all my teams. I come in and see all my teams. I work with all my teams. And I help them. And they send me videos. And I watch their videos. And I tell them what to change. I do all of that even the kids that are at junior colleges, I help them still try to find a college to go to after four years to, to do their four-year school. I help. Once you ruthless, you ruthless forever, you know, and you're with us, you graduate with us. You hopefully will come back and coach with us eventually and whatnot. And, you know, it's one of those things that it's a family, you know, and we work with everyone and he was just tripping. So that's why I started ruthless because People are paying to be these other organizations and getting nothing for it. You know, so the way I look at it is people pay to be a part of Ruthless and they do pay a fee to us. But what their fee is, is like a down payment to a clinic. That's all it is. You know, like, so if you were to come to my clinic, it would cost you 150, 160 bucks to come to a clinic. You get me for one day, you know, for three hours. So if my kids pay $40 a month and I come and see them, sometimes some teams, I see them every month. Some teams, I see them every three months and they're putting their down payment towards that that training. But they're getting training. They're on our website. We have recruiting help for them. We have training videos for them. So they can go to ruthlesssoftball.org. They can click on the training. It has strength and conditioning, speed and agility. It has hitting drills on there. We're adding throwing drills and fielding drills in there. They get access to all of that. So the issue you guys are in right now, where you don't have trainings, you would have trainings. See? You can click on it. And it's right there at your fingertips. Do
0: you plan on ever, like, expanding it to, like, New York or, like,
1: we are. We, we are actually working on, hopefully, I think here, either in January or in August, we are going to move into New York. We have a gentleman that's going to bring us in
0: there. Oh, nice. Um, and then this is a question that I had. Um, it's like more of a personal one, but what advice do you give when dealing with an injury? Like, what would you suggest to do during that time off to improve your game to make sure that when you get back, you don't miss a beat on the field?
1: Well, it depends on the injury. So what injury do you have?
0: So actually I'm getting hip surgery, um, okay. for labrum tear. So, um, I'll be out for a few months, but I was just wondering like what I should do during that time to make sure that I'm uh, working on some part of the game.
1: So with your hip being, <laughs> having surgery, your hip is a big part of, um, all of our movements, right? You're, it's the rotational movement, throwing, there's a rotational movement and hitting, um, Try to strengthen your muscles that are going to, when they end up cutting into you, that end up being, going into atrophy. Um, so if that's going to happen, you, you've got to strengthen those muscles before you go into the surgery. I know, try to find workouts that are going to get all those muscles surrounding that area. Um, so that way, when you recover, your recovery is even quicker. Um, and then if you're able to throw, there's throwing drills you can do prior to going in. If you're able to do stuff in a chair, one arm drills, where you're working on your through motion hitting, um, just stuff like that, that's not going to injure your injury even more um, before you go in. So that's what I would do. And then as you recover, a lot of band work, a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff you can do with bands that are in the same motion as hitting and the same motion as throwing that are going to help strengthen your body as well.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. So does anybody else have any other questions that they
2: want to ask? I have a question. Um, First of all, thank you so much for being here. This has been great. I've learned so much. Um, And my question is just, what was your routine leading up to a game? Did you like to listen to music? Were you one of those who just wanted to be in silence? Did you give yourself a pep talk? How do you prepare mentally um, to to go into the game?
1: That's a great question. I was one that prepared like the night before. Um, so I would put my uniform out, make sure I had all the parts to it because I never wanted to be that person missing socks or missing whatnot. So I would lay out everything the morning before and then I would um, get breakfast. I would have to have breakfast before eight o'clock in the morning. So normally I'd be up at like six thirty, get ready, go down, have breakfast at seven and then come back to my hotel room or whatever or not um, at at eight o'clock. So I would have to eat breakfast. And then throughout the rest of the day, I really didn't eat because I ate like a really big breakfast. Um, And I never wanted to have to worry about going to the bathroom during the game or anything like that. I know it sounds funny, but it's just the truth. You know, I don't want to be uncomfortable during a game at all. Um, So I would, I would then start preparing my mind for the game in the hotel room I would isolate myself from everyone um, unless it was just my roommate that was in and out of the room or whatnot but I didn't need to hang out with anybody I just wanted to do my stuff which I would run the game in my head run the perfect swing I would run the perfect fielding run double plays in my head I'd take a nap maybe for a little bit then get back up again get moving um but that was the whole day preparing for what we would normally play at like five o'clock, six o'clock when all the fans come in and everything. So I would be ready by then we get to the training room early. I never wanted to be late. So I was always early for everything hours early. Cause I never wanted to run into an accident or run into whatever on the way to the field. And, and I was just always early. Um, and then I would go to the training room. Um, I would either tape my ankles sometimes I had uh, certain things that were bothering me because I had knee surgery. So I had uh, ACL, MCL, PCL, all that done up um, when I slid into a bag wrong once. And so I had all that and I would make sure I would just ice down or I would heat up or whatever was going on before or after the games. I would make sure I took care of myself, was there plenty of time. um, And then I would get on the field and I would I would only hit. until it felt good so if I hit one ball and it felt good I would walk away and a lot of people be like that's all you're gonna do one hit I'm like yeah why am I gonna stay here till it gets bad like it feels good I'm good I'm ready you know some days it was 10 swings you know and I felt good some days it was five some days it was one and I'm I'm in and I'm out I'm, I'm ready for the game um throw the ball around stretch just make sure I keep my mind and then I did have music on on the bus rides, because a lot of noise going on on the bus. Normally, everyone's happy, cheering. Everyone's like pumping themselves up. I don't need to hear all that. I just want to be me. So I just I would put my music on, and not hear nobody. I, I just want to get to the field. I wear it all the way up to the field, into the dugout. Take it off. Boom, it's game time. Like, it just that was just something that I did. And I actually used a sports psychologist on the U S team that would do that for me. He was the one that, you know, got my mindset into that set where I was just comfortable using the headphones to do that. Um, prior to the Olympics, I, uh, I was listening during practice during hitting practice, I would listen to crowds. Um, so he had recorded, uh, he was a world renowned, uh, sports psychologist, um, Ken Revisa, so he recorded me a, a, this is going to sound how old I am, right? It was a tape (laughs) that I would play in my walk, man, of a hostile, it was actually a hostile soccer crowd, because that's where most of the crowds was hostile in soccer, right? They get loud, they get crazy. So I would play that in my ears, because I had never played in front of big crowds. And so I had to be prepared for a crowd that was against the US, because that's everywhere we went, they were against us. So that's how I prepared myself to get ready. So that's just me.
2: Definitely. I'm taking some tips from there um, for the future season. And my other question is, I don't think it was asked, but like, what has been your greatest lesson from playing softball? Has it been a physical one or has it been something that you've been able to implement? Um, and you like, you know, your daily life and stuff like that. So what has been your greatest lesson?
1: I think my greatest lesson that I've learned is, um, is, is got to be the discipline, you know, the, the structure that you need in order to have gotten to where we've gotten. Um, we don't just happen to just make it there. There's a, there's a structure that we use to get there. There's a training regimen, there's a plan. Um, And I feel like everything that you want to do has to start with structure and it has to start with a plan. You have to know where you're going, a goal or whatnot, right? And for me as a little kid, my goal was to be a professional athlete and I wasn't going to let nobody tell me I wasn't, um, whether I was going to play for the Dodgers or whatnot. I was going to play professionally. And um, that was my goal. So I think as I got older and with the U.S. team, our plan was to be the best and win no matter what. Um, and we trained harder than everyone. We had a plan that was better than everyone. That is what I what I feel like. And it wasn't until I got to Coach Kendrea, which was one of the best coaches in the world, Um, he set those plans in effect. Like you had it all written out. You had a calendar that told you what you were doing and you stuck to the plan. Um, And you saw the outcome. You know, we beat in 2000, we had just barely won by one run and we had lost three games. In 2004, we come back and we beat everyone 51 to one. They scored one run against us. And he implemented a plan, a structure that we didn't have in 2000. And so for me, you know, Coach Condrea saying, you know, coming with a plan. And the one thing that sticks out to me is he's always like, you don't have to be 100. It's hard to maintain 100. He's like, I need you to stay 85, 90. Stay consistent. You know, and I think if we can stay eighty-five, ninety, in life, and be consistent versus reaching a hundred one day, be consistent all the days at what you plan on doing. You know, that to me, has is, is been one of the things that I feel like is very easy to do because we all want to be a hundred, and it's hard to maintain the gas to be a hundred all the time. But if you can cruise in that eighty-five, ninety you're going to get through everything. You're going to get through everything and get a lot more than burning out real quick. Now that's, that's to me is what stuck with me.
2: Right. Uh, And this is my last question. You speak a lot about different coaches and how much of an impact they've had on you. What kinds of characteristics do you see yourself? um, Do do you see in yourself as a coach from things that you've learned from them?
1: (laughs) I've learned that it's hard for me to coach a team. I'm a better clinician than I am a coach of a team. Um, I like to work one-on-one with athletes. I like to work in small groups with athletes, but to do the whole coaching, it is a special thing to coach a whole team and maintain all of that. So for me, I learned that part. Um, Being around different cultures, I've learned what, is a necessity and what really isn't, you know? Like I've I've gone to the Dominican Republic to Venezuela to all over the country and seen all the different cultures. I personally have learned to like, I like my own culture, but at the same time, I like like the Japanese and the Chinese culture, the Asian culture, um, because they're very process driven, right? And I feel like as Americans, we are very outcome driven, right? So we are a lot of like, if you hear about a lot of the stuff we do, it's like shortcut cutting, right? If you do this, 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 you can get to here faster. You know, where I've been in Japan, I've been in China and it's a process. If you do A, B, C, we'll get you D, right? Every time A, C, we'll get you D, C, we'll get you D. You know what I'm saying? Where we're like, oh, we learned a new way. If you do the math this way, we can get you to the end now. It's like, well, ABC gets you D. Yeah, but no, now you're going to do A, D, F, get you to X, and then you're there. It's like, well, dang, that seemed like a lot longer than what we were doing. Um, because I can't even help my nieces and nephews with with math in their, uh, today's world. This is so different. Um, uh, But that's where like the Japanese have always had a culture of the sense of being process driven and not outcome driven. Um, And that's why you see their culture right now winning and on top and beating us in softball. They understand the process. They understand hard work. They're not trying to shortcut the process. They're doing the process Um, where you're always hearing like, in our culture we're just we just tend to be more outcome driven you know we can get you this for this price because it's cheaper you know what i mean instead of spending a little more and getting what's going to last for a long long time we go the cheaper route you know what i mean it's like this thing is it's the things that we do we tend to cut corners too much and for me i was always process driven that's what i try to teach our kids in our organization t Will lead you to the soft toss, which will lead you to the front toss, which will lead you to the machine, which will lead you to live pitching. If you understand the process, and you do the ten thousand hours on a tee, the ten thousand hours on a on a on a soft toss, and the ten thousand hours front toss, and the ten thousand hours on machine, by the time you get to the live, you, there's nobody you can face that's going to be a problem to you. Um, to teaching the process and being process driven is what I think is going to be the best thing for everyone.
0: Does anybody else have any other questions?
1: Those are good questions. Y'all had some good questions.
0: I guess that's it, but we, we're really appreciative of you doing this. Like it means a lot, and we all learned so much.
1: No problem. No problem. Like I said, use your avenues. Use what you guys can get to. You are at, at the end of the day. There's no one to blame for what you do or do not have. I tell that to everybody. Um, so what I mean by that is, at the end of the day, you get what you want in life because you choose to make those changes and make those those choices. It's not going to be because your coach. It's not going to be because of your teacher, it's not gonna be because of your mom, it's gonna be because of you. The choices you make will get you what you do or do not get in life. And so that's something you guys have to understand. Like It took me till I was about 19 years old to realize that it wasn't my mom's fault that I didn't have this. It wasn't my dad's fault that I didn't have that. It was my fault because I didn't make the choices that I should have made when I was younger. It was my choice to not go to class. It was my choice to not do the stuff I needed to do to be at the D1 school. So at the end of the day, there's no one to blame but yourself for what you do or do not get. Right. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thanks for visiting the Brew College Athletics Podcast. To listen to this podcast, you can find it on Anchor FM, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, to name the few. And don't forget also to visit our athletic website, brookathletics.com. This has been a presentation of the Brook College Sports Information Department.